Hello, friend. Hello, friend. Welcome to another podcast review of season four, the final season of Mr. Robot. I'm here with Henry. My name is Margaret, and we're really excited to talk about episode nine of season four with you called Conflict. Hi, Henry. How are you? I'm doing great, Margaret. Uh, I'm excited to be talking about this episode with you. Yeah, same here. It's been a real interesting ride, and I definitely appreciated all of the twists and turns in this ninth episode. What were your overall impressions of Conflict? Really, really liked the episode. You know, the thought occurred to me that, you know, episodes like that or this one uh, is what, you know, got me watching Mr. Robot, and it, you know, it's worth waiting around for, right? Like, there's a lot of uh, things that sort of happen in the episode to both kind of tantalize us about what's going to happen with the four remaining episodes, as well as wrap up some of the storylines and threads that have been going on for the past four seasons. I also appreciated how many twists and turns there were, as I mentioned just now, that even at this point where you feel like, oh, we're just going to wrap up the series, you know, and things are going to play out sort of how we expect, even with the first scene where we see Mr. Robot meeting Elliot's mother in that giant office that overlooks New York City, and he sees his mother and young Elliot, and it seems like there's something else afoot besides this major hacking effort that's been going on to defeat the Dark Army. What did you think about that? Was that a surprise to you as well? Yeah, and you know, it got me thinking about the stylistic choice, right? Like, how do you portray multiple characters? How do you portray what's going on in Elliot's head? And, you know, the way that they kind of have it where these personas are talking to each other, it sort of reminded me of that Pixar movie, Inside Out. Do you know the movie I'm talking about where, you know, it's like the emotions are all inside of people's heads and you see the emotions like talking to each other um, and kind of mapping out like what happens inside of people's minds. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of that, where you have these different parts of Elliot kind of arguing and talking with each other. Yeah, I think so, too. It was really surprising to see Mr. Robot meeting with the personification of Elliot's always smoking mother. And also young Elliot was in the room. And it's in that space that we're familiar with that looks like some kind of an office setting. Or it's just a surreal setting, to be honest. And Elliot's mother says, when is this going to happen? And Mr. Robot says, it's not going to happen today. We have to help him through this. He's not ready. Young Elliot says, well, maybe we should tell him everything, adult Elliot everything, and then it'll be okay. And Elliot's mother, ever critical, smoking away, says, you let this go on for far too long. And Mr. Robot just emphasizes, as soon as the hack is finished, we can talk to Elliot and Darlene might be the key. He woke up for her. She can help. What's your interpretation of what's going on there? Initially, I thought it was them talking about, you know, this hidden persona, you know, in episodes prior to this in the fourth season, there's been some sort of reference or allusion to another persona that we haven't seen or hasn't been revealed to us yet. So initially with this scene, I thought they were talking about that persona. And when they said, you know, the last time he appeared was two months ago when, you know, Darlene talked to him. 
Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, that, 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 so that got me thinking about this hidden persona thing. Um, but then later on in the episode, I realized that they also were, could be talking about Elliot. So I was a little bit confused, actually. I was a little bit confused as well. And I enjoyed being confused. It wasn't a bad confusion, right? It was like, wow, what is going on here? There's this whole other layer. And it kind of made me wonder, is Elliot in a coma? Because at one point, Elliot's mother says, we can't go on like this poor boy. We may lose him forever. Maybe he's in some kind of an institution or some kind of a state where he's unable and and non-responsive to the outside world. And this was all of an interior event happening. I mean, who knows? Or maybe it's, it's more practical than that, because we've seen that there are a lot of times in Mr. Robot where they try to intimate, you know, time travel, all the Back to the Future references. And then we realize it's sort of a diversion, that there were more sort of real world grounded things going on. So I was very delighted for that scene and surprised. And one thing about that scene for me is it looks like a place where I used to work in New York. I used to work at, at, at this law firm in Wall Street. And it was on the, you know, they had, I think, the 36th through the 50th floors of a building downtown, basically across the street from the world, old World Trade Center site. And from the offices, you had these amazing views of the city, but it also felt really surreal and like you're a bit disconnected, right? Because you have these amazing views and you're, you know, hundreds of feet in the air and, you know, big glass windows. And it looks like you're just kind of standing in midair looking at the city. It's a pretty surreal sort of experience. That's pretty neat that you had a similar office experience. It is a very iconic New York setting. And I did like how they had sort of this blue tinting coloring to the whole scene to make it even more cold and maybe dreamlike. But it's funny how New York-centric this show is and how if you've spent any time in New York, like you're describing that the stuff is not that unfamiliar. It's stuff that you've experienced probably. And then we cut to Darlene, who, by the way, has made an incredible recovery from getting, you know, bashed over the head. It's amazing to me how on TV shows people recover from injuries pretty seamlessly (laughs) compared to real life. Like, I think I'd still be in, in the hospital or something, but she's she meets up with whom she thinks is Elliot, and it turns out to be Mr. Robot, because Mr. Robot is taking over because Elliot is still mired in conflict. And it was cool. What did you think about how at first Darlene thought she was talking to her brother, and then she realized that it was Mr. Robot, given how he was harshly talking to her? Yeah, I thought that was pretty effective. Uh, it, I, I think, you know, having... I think it worked better that way than if Rami Malek was trying to act like Mr. Robot and the scene was shot where, you know, he was in that character. Although I still think that the show is going to do that later on. Like, I think it's a sort of dramatic effect that gets wasted if it's used too often. So I think, you know, right now we have the effect where we actually see the persona that he's inhabiting on screen. Yeah, yeah. And Darlene is very protective of her brother. You know, where is he? But she doesn't have too much time to explain what happened to her and Mr. Robot doesn't have too much time to explain what happened to Elliot because good old Philip Price shows up and everyone's like, why are you here? And Philip needs a favor because she he wants everyone to in the room to have access to White Rose's machine and destroy everything 
everything you need to know is on this thumb drive, and I'm doing this for my daughter. Yeah, and this scene took on added significance for me at the end of the episode when I realized like this was setting the foundation for the episodes to come. Uh, because at the end of this episode, I'm like, well, there's four other episodes for this season, right? Like, what, what's, what's next? And then I thought about this scene and the thumb drive, and I realized, okay, like this is the the seed that's planted that we're gonna, you know, explore over the next few episodes. Yeah, and it was great how Darlene was incredibly confused. First of all, why is Philip Price here, and why does Elliot seem so familiar with him? And what the heck does he have to do with Angela? Because, you know, they're all still traumatized over not only the loss of Angela, just but the way she disassembled as a person and, and just became a shell of herself. That must be very traumatizing. But, um, but they don't have too much time to think about it because they need to get access to all of the phone numbers of the Deus group who are in New York to for this meeting that White Rose called, and they want to transfer the funds of the Cypress National Bank. And in order to do that, they need to get all of the phone numbers of everyone in the Deus group. And I'd be interested to hear what you think about this plan, so that they can get get the two-factor authentication code um, sent out to loosen up the funds. And then Darlene's going to run a script to approve those transfer codes before any of the Deus group members can act. Given that the, that's the plan, what do you think about the whole security setup that the invisible hand, the 1% of the 1% has in place for protecting their vast wealth with this simple two-factor authentication process? And then would blockchain have potentially helped them protect their money more effectively? Yeah, good question. I, I thought about the mechanics of the hack after the episode. And it to me, it wasn't clear why you know, you had individual accounts and phone numbers, you know, and they had to find these phone numbers, but then there was only one two-factor authentication code that was sent instead of two-factor authentication codes being sent to every single person. So it seems like there is some sort of setup where you have phone numbers tied to individual accounts, but then for the transfer of funds out of all of these accounts, only one two-factor authentication code is sent. Like, one, as a security setup and design, that seems like fundamentally flawed. But maybe, you know, that's there's a trustee or a custodian for all the accounts. And so, you know, they're able to basically grab control of that custodial account and then transfer it. It did strike me as, you know, pretty uh, weak security that <laughs> all of this money is basically just based on a, a two-factor authentication code that's sent by a telephone, a text message, uh, because there's been a lot of things in the news talking about hacks that have been done where people hijack someone's phone number by calling customer support, not even doing anything as technical as uh, Darlene and Elliot did in this episode, but just calling and doing social hacking and getting control over phone numbers transferred to someone else and then having that other person receive the two-factor authentication code. That's something that's been done. Blockchain, I don't think blockchain would necessarily block this just because I've heard a lot about blockchain thefts that have been able to defeat two-factor authentication uh, text messages 
specifically. You even hear in the news every now and then how Bitcoin billionaires have their funds stolen from them. Sometimes they even die in the midst of it and their Bitcoins suddenly cannot be found. And later on, we saw how the Deus group needed you know, weren't even able to leave the building without their drivers. So in some ways, maybe they're a little bit infantilized. They have everyone do everything for them. And for them, the two-factor authentication was secure enough, but I'm joking. So Philip leaves Elliot and Darlene with the thumb drive of White Rose's entire knowledge base, basically. And he heads to the meeting and Darlene finally realizes Angela was the daughter of Price, and she's she's pretty flattened by that. And then White Rose basically is in the process of ensnaring Philip because none of the other Deus group is there. It's just Philip, and Philip Price, in his typical uh, arrogant fashion, says, "Well, I'm the first to arrive." And White Rose wants to start with a drink, and it's all very James Bond villain. And then there's a lot of back and forth between. White Rose saying, I was going to let you die after you retired, but if you're lucky, I might even still let you die a peaceful death. We can pretend you died in your sleep. And all the while this is happening, Philip is just killing time. And Darlene and Elliot start wondering if this is a trap and if White Rose is onto them. Another nice New York touch, and then I'd like to get your impression, is that they discover that the Deus Group meeting has been moved to Cipriani. That is such a perfect restaurant, New York restaurant, to choose for a Deus Group meeting because all sorts of high-profile people hang out at Cipriani in New York. There's one near Grand Central. I pass it all the time where I used to. There's heavy security where White Rose and Philip are meeting, but it's to protect someone, probably White Rose, and that's where Philip Price drops Tyrell won't be in attendance. Do you find it surprising that White Rose is so out of sync with what's going on on the ground like this? Yeah, it it did kind of strike a a funny note for me that White Rose, who, you know, for three and a half seasons has been the master of information and being able to plan ahead and anticipate things, is all of a sudden caught off guard. Um, And you know, for that matter, lost track of where this his next CEO is going to be. Like, I would think that someone who is as meticulous as White Rose would keep track of things like this. Uh, so, you know, a bit of a, a question mark for me. But I thought Michael Christopher, the the man who plays Philip Price, did such an amazing job in this episode. Like, I I thought this this episode must have been so fun for him to play. Um, and, and act in just because what his character was able to do and the range uh, that he was able to go through in this episode, I thought was pretty amazing. The actor did really deliver throughout the whole series, but in this episode, and he really conveyed the sense of a man who has nothing left to lose. I mean, even though I decry how Philip Price suddenly had fatherly instincts towards Angela, I mean, it clearly broke him on some level losing Angela and seeing her die the way she did and and unravel the way she did, which is also would be painful. It just showed he didn't have any more fucks to give. (laughs) It's part of my language. One point White Rose says to Price, is this part of your plan? Price is like, I have no idea. He may be dead. Maybe he went to the Southwest for a ride. And then the assistant, this is such a, a funny thing. The assistant says to White Rose, he's making you into a fool. This is all about Alderson. You're so obsessed with Elliot. How could you? 
And White Rose keeps saying, Alderson is an integral to the shipping. So again, this the shipping. I mean, maybe shipping is is more of like a software phrase, like, you know, you ship, but it is tied to ship somehow. I'm still curious what that's all about. The assistant's so much more brave than the previous assistant. assistant. She's like, well, we've lost everything. You've been fooled. We have to leave to Lauren Day's group. And she ends up quitting. And it reminds me of all the times when employees try to tell their bosses, the writing's on the wall. Let's act soon. And and for some reason, the boss or the person in charge doesn't see it. But I was surprised how surly the assistant was. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a it's a it's a plot device. Like, I think the reason why we've had these scenes of her kind of arguing with White Rose and talking about, you know, how White Rose is a bit blind to Elliot and the threat he represents was kind of leading up to this moment so that we as an audience wouldn't be surprised when it happened. And then in thinking about, like, why would this be written in? It, to me, it's because I think she's going to play a role in the the next four episodes. Like, I think she is going to... Uh, play some sort of role where she maybe kidnaps Darlene or somehow tries to take revenge directly on Elliot. So I think I think she was, you know, everything was set up so for this moment for her to become like a detached wild card. It's true. There are these instances of unpredictable human nature factoring in. We saw that with Vera, sort of nobody could have anticipated Vera entering into the scene. And this assistant too, yes, she's a wild card. She is ambitious and she's not as loyal to White Rose. Personally, if I had somebody who was so clearly disloyal to me, as if I were White Rose, as, as you know, all powerful, I probably would have found a different assistant because the last thing you need is somebody you don't trust. But you know, not that she was wrong. And uh, and then Philip Price mocks White Rose. You you know you you seem to have issues with management. You're a terrible manager, which of course White Rose is. And then we get to Cipriani or Cipriani, which I again just love that very New York. Centric kind of setting. Darlene's trying to figure out how to get into this building. Um, the Deus group was surprisingly large. Were you surprised that it comprised of so many people? Yeah, I, I thought it was going to be, you know, 10 people around a, a, a boardroom table or something like this, not a, a gala. Basically, it looked like uh, one of those wealthy New York charity fundraisers, right? Where some foundation or museum decides to have a, a a gala to raise money. That's what it reminded me of. That's what it totally reminded me as well of. It reminded me of a place where in San Francisco, a bunch of VCs would go to wear their fancy outfits and get out of their puffy Land's End jackets for the day. And one thing I noticed, and I don't know if this was on purpose, one of the members of the dance group, as you entered into the scene from the back he kind of had hair very similar to our current president. So I don't know if that was on purpose. I have a feeling it probably was. Good eye. Good eye. I didn't catch that. But I agree with you. I also thought the Deus group would be sort of like what we saw in that one episode on The Simpsons from a long time ago, where I think Montgomery Burns was part of some secret society. And it was a big round table. And and you've seen that trope over and over again. So I was surprised. But the Invisible Hand, they come out for Christmas to New York. They'll drop everything. They'll all get together at Cipriani because, hey, who doesn't love a party? It was very convenient for the story to have everybody in the room. At some point, White Rose gets a phone call. Well, Philip gets a phone call from Mr. Robot, but White Rose understands this person to be Elliot. White Rose 
this is a, a really fascinating scene, tries to talk Elliot into coming over to her side because White Rose says, we're really fighting for the same thing. Mr. Robot says, well, if I'm hearing your voice on this other end of the call, it's all I need. And this is where White Rose tries to convince everyone, probably Price too, that Angela is alive. And it was so manipulative and evil. And it made me think how easily people can be manipulated into believing what they want to believe. I thought it was a powerful scene. What did you think? Yeah, I, you know, I think for me, it was interesting how they seemingly resolved the time travel uh, question mark. Because for me, it was also a question mark how they were going to resolve it in a way that didn't seem too hokey. And I think this idea that it was all a con by a master con man was something I didn't see necessarily as a possibility. And it's a very elegant way of explaining it, right? Is that White Rose is actually a consummate con man and manipulator and maybe, you know, the best social hacker ever and has managed to, you know, convince people of all sorts of things. And this is just an example of his power to do that. White Rose was amazing saying to Elliot, we can reset everything and live in the world we want. Let me show you the world I showed Angela. And then Elliot was like, I saw what you did to her. You used her. And just the way the character Angela, I have so much more appreciation for it. I've had friends, maybe you have too. When I was in college, they get involved in different groups or people who get involved in some of these self-help groups that sort of act more like cults. And we won't name names, but I think we all know what some of those might be. And, and you start to see how a person's entire sense of being gets broken down and rebuilt. And White Rose was so good at doing that to Angela and almost had Elliot, really got to Elliot and even got to Philip Price because later on Philip Price says, even I saw my daughter die. I saw it with my own eyes and I wanted to believe you. And it touches on sort of our whole post-truth society that we're sort of contending with these days. Yeah, fake news, right? Like you basically White Rose was trying to tell Elliot, like that was just fake news, Angela dying. Like, you know, listen to me, right? And the fact that Philip Price, again, the actor doing a great job of kind of showing his, you know, con initial contempt followed by this confusion. You can even see on Philip Price's face this question mark of like, did I actually, is she actually dead? And he's like, I actually saw it with my own eyes. It was the most horrific moment possible for me as a father. Yet even I'm doubting the truth of what I saw with my own eyes because of the power of your words. Like, I think that's actually a really powerful statement. I thought it was so powerful, too. And as you know, I'm here doing this podcast from Brazil, and I will probably post this after I return from Brazil. There's a whole sort of post-truth thing happening here too. There are huge assaults on the press and the freedom of the press. The government just declared, I think sometime this month, they want everyone to not use any kind of electronics whatsoever. So stay off your phone and especially stay away from video games. Just because you saw it with your eyes, it doesn't matter. It's fake news. Amazing how it's gripped so many parts of the world. So this scene just broke it down in a way I thought that was really relatable. Yeah, I think in, in 100 and 200 years from now, historians will look back and see this period as a time where we connected our minds uh, through these networks to each other, you know, first through like radio and uh, then television and then the internet uh, and network communications. 
And as we increase the speed and bandwidth of these networking technologies, we strengthen you know, these connections that we're building between our different minds with each other for better or for worse, right? Like I think the initial conceit of a lot of the founding fathers of Silicon Valley was that connectivity would bring about some sort of enlightened utopia um, by, that would emerge from all these minds being connected. And I think what we're seeing over the last 10, 15 years is that this connectivity also brings, you know, a lot of dark things uh, together. And that just like if you build a road to a city, it allows you to ship all sorts of great things to that new city. It also allows that other city to export a lot of undesirable things to your your town, uh, crime, you know, et cetera. So I think we're a little bit naive or blind to this right now, but it's something that we're going to become a lot more savvy about as we become more experienced with these technologies. It's true. Even if you look at history with the increase of trade and among different countries and continents, it brought things like the plague traveled from city to city in several continents through several eras of history. I do love how Darlene has been so consequential to the outcomes of this story. A lot of focus is rightfully put on Elliot and even Mr. Robot, but she is so good at thinking on her feet. She had such Cipriani. She wants to figure out a way to get into the restaurant or, or keep the dance group there so she can start picking up their phone numbers. I immediately thought she was going to take on the disguise of one of the servers, right? That was just where my head was going. But she went in a completely different direction. She broke into a costume store because it's New York and there are stores everywhere. And she offers an F Society Christmas miracle. We got to see another F Society video because we knew it was Darlene under that mask. You could tell the way she was sort of moving her arms around that that was Darlene. And she says, you know, hey, click on this link or download their private files. The link is here below. Deus Group, you have been owned. This is the beginning of the end. We are F Society. And I just thought that was, it just came out of nowhere and I loved it. Yeah, me too. It caught me by surprise. And again, now now that we know that it's Darlene as opposed to you know the beginning of Mr. Robot where we weren't sure, it's really uh, cool to see how Darlene moves. And, you know, we know that Darlene has a dance background, the theatricality and the the movements. Uh, you can see it. Uh, I thought it was, it was really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. And then Elliot and Darlene connect. And it's this time it's Elliot and Darlene's sort of very concerned still. But Elliot is just all business. He says he sees a cell tower. He wants to intercept the two-factor authentication codes before anyone in the dance group does. And I say, don't worry, they're too busy munching on canapes. They don't seem to be very capable of doing much on their own. Elliot's back in action. And then we see this part where White, White Rose is still behind the, the game, doesn't understand that there's a bigger plan afoot and thinks, you know, you, this is what your trick is. Philip Price, you, you think I can't survive being doxxed? That's your big move. And Philip Price is like, ha ha. If only you knew. Again, we start to see White Rose unravel in a pretty fast way that's atypical for her, I think. Well, I think what you see between Philip Price and White Rose are two contrasting methods of like, basically executing a plan to destroy someone else. Right, White Rose has the dark army. He's at the top. He makes all the calls. And he is you know, the force and the idea man behind you know, the plots that he puts into motion. 
Whereas Philip Price, once he decided to go to war with White Rose, worked on a model of like delegation, where he basically said, I'm going to work with this guy who's really, really great at, you know, doing terrible things to you. And I'm just going to let him run with it. Like, I'm not going to tell him what to do. I'm not going to tell him how to do it. I'm just going to help him and get out of his way. I don't even know what he's going to do to you. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to wa- sit back, watch and enjoy it. Right. And so to me, it was really interesting to kind of see these two kind of villain characters set up in this kind of classic, you know, villain monologue scene. Right. Like every action movie that has a villain has some sort of scene where, you know, the villain gives extended uh monologues to the protagonist you know talking about how great they are and how the protagonist is so stupid and they didn't see it coming and so you have this setup that's very classic but very different styles of villain villainy at play yeah it's true how much philip price is just letting it all hang loose for probably for the first time in a long time he can just enjoy as he handed over the keys to other folks to sort of take over and and take over in a way that White Rose would never expect a Philip Price. White Rose still thinks that their interests are in alignment still and doesn't realize that there's been this complete paradigm shift with Philip Price. And I did love how the Deus group starts calling all of their chauffeurs and their drivers and and assistants, and the assistants can't get out of the the parking garage. Again, very New York scene. I could actually see that happening, whether hacking was going on or not. And I'm sort of like, guys, call Uber. Are you going to call Uber? I mean, there are other options. And I was stuck in New York just the other day trying to get to the airport. I no, this is a long diatribe, but I, I traveled all the way to Penn Station and I go to get in a taxi and the, the guy who helps hail the taxi says, Miss, I'm going to save you all this money. You just have to take the Long Island Railroad and then get the air train. You're going to save all this money, Miss, blah, blah, blah. So I do that. And of course, the air train isn't running. It's snowing. Throngs of people are trying to get on these shuttle buses. And I ended up calling an Uber. But it was just so funny because I relate it to the Deus group, Cipriani, sort of like, what do we do? Our, our ride's not here. And then White Rose is just losing patience with Philip. But when White Rose really realizes what happens, we're all broke, account overdrawn. That's when White Rose loses it and is like, where's my funny? And then Philip Price says, your dream of another world is as good as dead. So what are we really rooting for as the audience? Like, what is this other world that White Rose wants? Is it like a Peter Thiel type uh, uh, utopia for the one percent. Yeah, I'm, I don't know, and I think we'll find out uh, through Elliot's investigation of the device that uh, Philip Price was talking about when he handed him the thumb drive early in the episode. I thought it was interesting to kind of see that Philip Price, instead of being cowed by White Rose's murder of his daughter, instead reached a point where he's like, I, I have zero f's to give, right? And he doesn't care about money doesn't care about anything other than hurting White Rose and and making White Rose suffer. And I think what happened to Philip Price in terms of, you know, uh, he lost his money, he was killed by White Rose. I think what you're going to see over the next four episodes is Philip Price's revenge unfold on White Rose where, you know, the things that White Rose cares about are taken from him. Yeah, yeah, it's... 
really well done. And then, of course, we get to the final scene where White Rose is back in her White Rose persona and the FBI is banging on the door. Open the door. We're really mad. How could you take all the money from us and have us live like this? And do you think White Rose is, that's it? We'll never see White Rose again? No, I think White Rose is going to feature heavily in the next four episodes. I think Darlene is probably going to get kidnapped or somehow put in jeopardy either by White Rose or his uh, wild card assistant. And the next four episodes are going to be, you know, involving Elliot, White Rose, Darlene and, you know, the various wild cards at play. Yeah, I, I when I watched it, I thought White Rose is a goner. But then when I rewatched it and I heard it was the FBI at the door, who knows with her diplomatic immunity, what she'll be able to get out of or get away with. But, you know, I don't think that the invisible hand is going to be fully destroyed. I think there will be methods for regaining money again. Um, Maybe it'll be reverting back to regular currency away from (laughs) e-coin. Who knows? Uh, So I think your predictions are right. I hope Darlene makes it out of this series alive. Uh, Just like Dominique, I hope she's still alive. I think she is. So it was a great episode. And and I think your predictions are probably spot on. I hope White Rose is still in it to win it. (laughs) Well, uh, well, for me, when I looked up the error code, uh, the 410 error code, and it says gone, you know, that kind of made me think, you know, the next episode is going to be about, you know, Someone or something being gone, right? So the money's gone. Who? Else, what else is going to disappear? I think Darlene's going to disappear. Uh, and you know, if you just imagine those two things happening, I think you can kind of understand the parameters of maybe what the next episode will be about. Yeah, yeah. I really hope Darlene survives it all because she has been through so much and hasn't had a lot of support in her life. Neither has Elliot, but she's so good and she's so loyal. And I just want them both to be okay. They're like. They're like Hansel and Gretel, <laughs> in a way. I think Darlene, in a lot of ways, will be the hero of this season. Like, I think it's, it, you know, Elliot has always been the main character. Um, and I think Darlene has played a more important central role this season. And I think she's going to be really, really important uh, to the outcome and resolution of the series. So I'm, I'm really excited for the actress. I'm excited as well for Darlene and to see how she continues to evolve and play an important role because she's been really great. The actress has just been so great. Everyone is great in this series. So should we move on? If you have any What Would You Rathers to talk about this week, uh, that would be great. I have one. Yeah, I have one. Uh, Would you rather aisle or window seat when traveling? On a plane. Oh my God. So as you know, I was just on an international flight and I chose window. I'm usually an aisle seat person and I was so glad to have that window seat. And I'll tell you, I'm a small person and I paid extra for sort of a a comfort seat and I could not believe how tight and small the seats were. I don't know how a normal sized person could handle it. I felt so bad for the people in the aisle in the middle seat. So window seat for international flight, aisle seat for domestic flights. How about you? What airline did you fly? It was American Airline, and it was seriously, my butt did not even fit on the seat. I don't know how these seats are designed for normal-sized people. It was so uncomfortable. 
Yeah, I've noticed that the other area that airlines are literally whittling away is the the width, right? Because initially it was a distance, like between the seat, like the leg room, right? Like that was initially the first squeeze that was happening, and now they're actually making everything narrower. Uh, and I remember flying this budget airline to Europe last year, and I was shocked at how narrow the seats were. Like, I when I sat down, both sides of my hips were touching the plastic <laughs> sides of the chair, and I was like, "Wow!" Like a lot of Americans are much bigger in size. Like the, this just seems fundamentally designed to make people unhappy and miserable. It's really outrageous. It's really inhumane to force people to contort their bodies like that. So my what would you rather, and I I think I know what your answer is going to be, but since I'm in Brazil, I'm going to say, what would you rather, soccer or football, as it's called in most places, or basketball? Oh, basketball. I mean... I think the the one of the biggest loves of my life and the longest love of my life has probably been the game of basketball. <laughs> uh, and I, I grew up in Los Angeles with, with the Lakers. Like I remember listening to the Lakers on the radio when I was like four years old, uh, driving around with my parents, uh, with my dad. Uh, so it's one of the the earliest like memories I've had. And like there was a period of time in college, for instance, where I would play so much basketball that I would plan my class schedules around the best times that there were pickup times to play basketball. Um, so I'd like say like, okay, between one and five, like I can't take any classes because I need to be able to play basketball. It's like crazy when I think about how important it was to me at one point in my life. What about you? That's a great answer. So I grew up being a fan of the 76ers. I think I have a hard time choosing between the two. I think right now, because I'm in Brazil, I think I'm going to go with soccer or football, as it's called elsewhere, because when you watch soccer games, the players are just so dramatic. <laughs> you know, they, they roll around like they have the most intense in just injuries and the, the slow cam reenactments of the whole like dramatic unfolding. It's kind of like watching a Shakespearean drama, but it's a sport. So I think right now, soccer, but when I'm back at home, I love the Lakers and I love the 76ers, of course. So it's a tie, but soccer for now. <laughs> I mean, I would have to say Brazil is a place that will even turn someone who's ambivalent about football or soccer uh, into a fan. Like I was there in 2014 for the World Cup. One of the years the World Cup was being held, it wasn't being held in Brazil at the time. I think it was being held in Europe. And I was there, and when the game is happening, when the Brazilian team is playing, no one is on the street. It's like super quiet and empty because everyone's inside in front of their television set. And when the team scores, it's like the entire, I was in Sao Paulo, the entire, it was like the entire city of 12 million screamed at once. Like you could hear outside the window, like it, it was pretty amazing. I, th I thought it was a great experience. It's been great talking with you about Mr. Robot, Henry. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking with you soon. I know we're getting this episode out late. It's been kind of a crazy week, but episode 10 is just around the corner. So we'll talk soon. Yeah, and I hope all the listeners uh, to this podcast enjoyed the Mr. Robot episode as much as we did. Uh, thank you all for listening and, you know, being together with us on this journey. It's really great. And have a safe trip back from Brazil, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you. I, I will cram myself into the seat just to get home in one piece. Thanks, Henry, and I'll talk to you soon.